Hello everybody and welcome to Cutting In From The Left. I am your host Tom Wise and I have with me Luis Antonio Streeter. How are you doing Luis? Hi Tom, doing well. Uh, glad to be back again uh, for another great episode hopefully. Yeah, and I can't wait for it as well. It's, I thought I'd struggle to tear you away from the polling booth today as it is a local election day in the UK. But you have turned <laughs> up, so it's good to see you. I have, just about. <laughs> this week was all about the Champions League games that we've just had. Uh, Man City versus PSG and Chelsea versus Real Madrid. I want to start by talking about them two games, really. Man City won 2-0 in the second leg over PSG, 4-1 on aggregate. Uh, I don't know about you, but the, the pitch beforehand, it was sort of frosty, but quite icy. And it's, just, it's strange to have that at this time of year in this country. And I thought without the fans there and the pitch looking like that, it's almost looked like a Zenit St. Petersburg game where the fans had been banned for being racist or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or one of those sort of group stage games where a big team goes to, to Norway, to like Rosenborg or somewhere and plays there in November and it's sort of minus 20 degrees. Game started, the ref tried to give a dodgy penalty to PSG for a, a handball, which was clearly hitting Zinchenko's shoulder. Uh, VAR actually got that one right and didn't give the penalty. The first City goal came all the way from Edison in, in the net. He played an amazing pass uh, out to the left wing uh, to Zinchenko, who then found De Bruyne on the edge of the box. His shot was blocked and there was Riyad Mahrez to tap it in at the back post. The second City goal was Mahrez's goal as well. Phil Foden is just looking an absolute baller on the left wing. He played a really good one too with Kevin De Bruyne. He then found Mahrez at the back post again uh, to make it 2-0. PSG sort of lost their heads in the last 20 minutes. Uh, Angel Di Maria got himself sent off for a bit of petulance, really, uh, kicking out at Fernandinho on his 36th birthday as well. Thought didn't really deserve that. Verratti, I thought, was lucky not to see two yellows. He was sort of flying about. He was quite hot-headed. And Kimpembe had like a... One of them terrible tackles on Gabriel Jesus, yeah, yeah. where it was one of them. It was just solely like, you know, you're not going to take the piss any longer. And he just went right through it. <laughs> it, it was pretty bad. Um, yeah, Foden hit the post as well. He was unlucky not to get a goal. This was this was Man City at their best, weren't it? Following on from the week before when they'd had such a good second half. This, this game, they just totally dominated. Yeah, it was really quite one-sided. I think at first, PSG were threatening a little bit for the first half but then I mean they just look so solid defensively as well I mean obviously I think Ruben Diaz has got a lot of attention um, for them kind of recently and it's true they just add something it's almost that more of that physicality and wanting to put his body on the line and it reminds you kind of of Vincent Company and what they missed when he left um, so that's really helped them to solidify that unit and overall you can tell they've done a lot of work and being more compact and it's helped them so much in these ties I guess before in the uh, in the Champions League knockout stages, they seemed a little bit fragile at times. Even against opposition, you'd expect them to beat past Monaco or Lyon even. But now, you know, looking a lot more solid against, obviously, a world-class attacker like Neymar. But to be honest, I think my main kind of point, I mean, we all know how good Manchester City are at this point. Obviously, this season, kind of getting back to their best. I have to say, looking at PSG's squad... I feel like it's really not as strong as I'd expect it to be of a club with that much money. You're almost kind of looking there in their team and you think, actually, how many of those players are really getting into 
a club like Man City or even say Bayern um, and seeing like really top class or world class players. That's completely true. Like people like Di Maria, I just I he's he's really he's been a really frustrating player for me ever since he left Real Madrid, probably, where it's just like I'm not sure whether he is is he really good enough to be playing on the wing for like a team that wants to win the Champions League? Uh, you know, Mbappe was obviously missing, but without him, I could—I didn't even know Icardi was playing. To be honest, like there was lots. Yeah. Of, he, was, he was just sort of nowhere on the pitch. Um, so yeah, I think you're completely right about that. Yeah, the likes of, for example, like Paredes is a good player, but he's—is he starting quality for a side that wants to win the Champions League? It feels like Verratti's doing a lot in the in the center on his own. And you can tell, like his frustration, as you say, he could have been sent off. I think partly is probably his own teammates. So he's only only one really using the ball well out there and holding it and being able to turn in tight positions. As you say, Icardi was a non-entity. Um, I feel like he's a great goal scorer, but um, is he a great all-round striker, which you kind of need at this stage in the top level? Um, and that's why I mean, it's all some people bring up even obviously with Pochettino in charge. Maybe you go for Harry Kane in the summer, and you know the, I think the contrast between someone like Kane who a really great pass with the ball, holds it up, links the play so well, as well as being a great goal scorer. And someone like Icardi, who just seems like if, if there's not goals to be scored and he's not in the right position to do it, just not really interested in doing anything else. So it's night and day, really. Yeah, and I think if you're bringing on like Moise Keane as, as the sub-striker when Mbappe's not there, it, you know, I, I, he's, he's obviously a young lad and, you know, you never know what he might go on to do, but... He's not really, he didn't never really cut it or looked like the man for Everton. Um, he's had a pretty good year for PSG in the French league. You know, I know you're not, you know, <laughs> we can't just take like digs at the French league, but it, I'm not sure whether he's good enough to, to lead the line for a team that's aiming for the Champions League. Um, but yeah, they're, they're very disappointing, really. But I, I think it's more so you just want to praise Man City, don't you? And like you say, Ruben Diaz has just absolutely changed that team. He's him and Stones. Like, I, this is something about Pep. I'm not sure whether we've talked about it, but the way that you just never know every, each season what's going to happen with the team. Like, that, if you said like a year ago, even that Laporte wouldn't be starting a game like that for Man City, mm. you'd just be like, what? Like, he last year he was like the only competent defender, and somehow he's, he's, he doesn't get looking, does he anymore? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the guy who's a, basically a, a world class centre back, but he can't even get in the team. And I thought Kyle Walker was also really impressive. And I think he's one of those where from season to season, he can vary quite a lot, even from match to match. Because I feel like sometimes maybe his concentration or his positioning, other things, decision-making, let him down a little bit. But at his best, I think it's very difficult to name a better defender. Because he's just, especially his just raw physicality in terms of he's so quick and he's so strong with it as well. And he's good in the air. He really has all those attributes and he's able to tackle, he's able to get forward. So he's a really great all-round player. You know, if he doesn't have those kind of lapses of concentration, then he's really kind of impenetrable and, and also a threat going forward. Yeah, he's definitely done himself no harm in terms of the England squad. I feel like there was a point a few months ago where it was almost between Trent and uh, Rhys James at right back, mm. and you're almost forgetting about Kyle Walker. Because I think, again... Um, it looked as if Cancelo was going to be Man City's right back. And it was, but he just chops and changes so much. Like you, you never really know. Um, I think, I think credit, we've got to give some credit, as I said, on his birthday to Fernandinho. Like this bloke, he's just been, he's been immense his whole time in England. I've just loved watching him. 
And one of his greatest assets was there again in the week, weren't it? His ability to just somehow evade the referee and not get a booking. <laughs> like I, the, 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 he made a foul near the end, didn't he, on the edge of the area? And, and I think he even got away with that. And it's just like, how does he do it? Like, he's just been such a great player. Yeah, and I think he's just a really clever player like that because he doesn't attract attention. He doesn't go up to the ref afterwards and be like remonstrating with them or kind of getting in other players' face. Places. Um, I saw him, for example, he was calming down. I think it was Zinchenko yeah, who yeah, got was, really yeah. angry at one point and Fernandinho was clearly telling him to just, you know, we're winning this match. There's no need for you to do anything. Just, just calm down. Um, and that shows, I think, the kind of temperament that you need that kind of experience and that leadership there. And I mean, to be doing that at 36 years old, to be kind of, you know, one of the best midfielders on the pitch in the Champions League semi-final, is it's really impressive. It's been excellent. Let's see, we can seamlessly dive from one holder midfielder to another holder midfielder. And I want to talk about N'Golo Kante for Chelsea and uh, his game with Real Madrid. Uh, they won 2-0 on the night like Man City did. 3-1 on aggregate. The first goal... Uh, was down to Kante winning the ball as he's done so many times. Uh, play, plays a little one-two to open up the space. Havertz then chips Courtois, hits the bar, and it's finished off by Werner. Like quite happy to see see him getting a goal. Second goal, it was it was all about a really clever substitution putting Pulisic on by um, Thomas Tuchel. He he just absolutely scared the Madrid defenders all night. Kante won the ball again. He played it wide to Pulisic, who then put it into the middle for Mason Mount to finish, and that confirmed it that Chelsea were going to another final. Uh, but yeah, like I say, Ngala Kante, like I think he was he was man of the match, I think, in both legs of this. He was just he's just unbelievable, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, completely unplayable. It's obviously a cliche at this point, but he is just a one-man midfielder when he's playing like that. I mean, you, you really can't stop him. He just gets everywhere. Um, and he's improved, I think, and also in the way he uses the ball. And you can see that obviously setting up the two goals. Nice bit of footwork for the first goal as well. And, you know, kind of picked out the passes quite well. And obviously in terms of kind of intercepting the ball, tackling, winning it midfield, it's probably no one better uh, in world football. And just, and just, yeah, the sheer energy and the way he can completely just take a game by the scruff of its neck and dominate it is... I mean, it's just something that very, very few players, not just right now, but in the history, really, of football have been able to do at such a high level consistently, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, what else is there left to say about that? Yeah, about I, that guy? I was thinking this week that Chelsea, they've had some pretty good holding midfielders, haven't they, throughout the years? And I think you could, I was trying to, in my head to think of like McAuley, Kante, and say like Michael Essien, and it's like as a, as a three, I mean, I think it's quite hard, but like, who, who would be your number one of those three? <laughs> I think, you know, there's a reason it kind of got named the Makaleli role, because I think probably as a pure defensive player, Makaleli, I don't think probably could be beaten. Mm. But I feel like Kante is almost a fusion of Essien and Makaleli to a certain extent, because he does the defensive work so, so well. And Essien could also do defensive work, but he was more sort of box to box, a little bit mm. more offensively oriented. But Kante now is definitely, especially in the last couple of years, showing they can really burst forward, um, pick a pass, as we saw, kind of snatch it, press high up the field, and then use that to either create, help create goals or even score a couple themselves. So I think that just makes him really such a complete player, which is just so difficult to, to have at the top level. It's got to be a bit of 
credit surely to the forgotten man at Chelsea, um, Sari, isn't it? Because I mean, he he was a bloke that was trying to play Kante a bit further forward, and I feel like we all thought it was insane at the time. But surely those little little things, little tweaks, have, have helped him. Because yeah, he's definitely having more of an influence going forward these days. Yeah, definitely. Aside from Kante, I thought people like Aspilicueta were excellent for Chelsea. Um, Rudiger, excellent again. I feel like the change of manager has just had such an unbelievable effect on all of these types of players. Like They must have thought that their Chelsea careers were finishing, really. And and Thomas Tuchel, he's he's focused so much on the defence and and how important it is to just not concede, like to limit how many goals you let in. and, And... They've just been so good at the back. Like I've I've loved watching them. Like from a defensive point of view, there, there's been games where it's just been it's quite hard to say this is like an excellent game. But from from a defensive point of view, it's just they they play so well, don't they? Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, in an earlier episode, I said I was a bit skeptical of Tuchel, but to be honest, at the moment he's kind of outperforming certainly my expectations. Um, he's done really well, as you say. The defense is a key part of that. Um, he's really got them organized. Uh, they're really enjoying that free at the back system at the moment. And yeah, having kind of Thiago Silva in there marshalling things obviously makes a big difference too. As well as, as you say, Rudiger had a great game. So yeah, I think kind of combining that with obviously the energy that they've got as well with, with Kante and Mason Mount, obviously a really hard worker as well and, and kind of drifts across the forward line quite a bit. Um, you've got the likes of Pulisic who can bring off the bench. It's a really exciting team at the moment. They work really well in terms of especially getting runners forward um, and kind of transitioning quite quickly. We saw those counter attacks against Real Madrid as well. I guess the one thing you would say, kind of linking it back to Werner a little bit, is that they were a bit wasteful. They definitely should have put away more than more than a couple of goals that they got. Um, obviously, it didn't really matter much in the end, but I think that is probably the one area where they're probably looking at to improve um, if they can get a bit more consistency in their finishing then they could be uh you know a really terrifying team to face yeah i think mount said after the game in his post-match interview that you know they probably should have had five or five goals or something like that yeah there was chances for a lot of people weren't there i think Havertz missed the one-on-one uh, mount fired over at a one-on-one can they miss the one-on-one Havertz hit the bar um yeah i i'm not really convinced that Havertz or Werner is going to be your 20, 25 goal a season sort of striker. But, you know, it, it's sort of like times are changing, aren't they? And it's like the way that Man City can play without having an out-and-out striker. Maybe maybe you don't need that out-and-out striker anymore, but just expects that the, the other lads can finish when they get the chances. Yeah, I think Werner is still meant to be that sort of player for them because, I mean, if you look at his scoring record for Leipzig, it was really good, sort of 25, 30 goals season kind of player so I mean if they can maybe perhaps get his confidence back I mean a goal in the you know, Champions League semi-final will hopefully help him out in that regard as well then perhaps he could kind of be that player for them a little bit and have other players as you say contribute perhaps 10 goals or so a season and, and that can kind of make up the, the shortfall No I think that's that's fair I think he he definitely has some promise even if it is in terms of like just being the guy that sets the goals up like he I mean, I think before anyone had scored, uh, he put a really good cross in from the left wing that sort of nobody had run to the first to the front post to read. But I do think he's like very valuable on the pitch. But yeah, he's just not really been banging him in. And Havertz, like he scored a couple against Fulham at the weekend. He was really unlucky not to score in this game. So maybe maybe he's the guy. Like he's not very old. I think I feel like it's like 
you think of English football and you think of big tough strikers, don't you? And, and I sort of look at Havertz, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's like if he if, does he need to bulk up a little bit or something like that, like just just so he has that bit more of a presence because he's he has some lovely touches. Like I think I I think I even saw Rio Ferdinand comparing him to Dimitar Berbatov, like in how he plays, which is you know but pretty good praise. Yeah, well, they both came from Bayer Leverkusen as well. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Enough about Chelsea, but Real Madrid are they? Have they all got, gone over the hill together, do you think? Yeah, and I think people have sort of been predicting it almost for a while. And it's some, they've seemed to kind of maintain their composure. I think when people thought they were finished for a while, that kind of, I guess, that core of the team that they had, obviously, Kroos, Modric, Ramos, um, Casemiro, Benzema, and people sort of written them off, perhaps, especially after, for example, that Ajax defeat um, a couple of years back. And people perhaps had felt, you know, that they were done. And they had done some refresh, sort of refreshing of the team, like Sir Ferdinand Mendy, kind of a starter now. Um, he's been really good this season, actually one of the bright spots for them. And uh, Alexis Valverde coming in, Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr. signed for kind of quite big fees and they've been quite important players for them now. But it still feels like they're almost stuck in that phase between two different teams. And whether it's a case that kind of the reported financial issues are disrupting that a little bit, might be something to do with it as well. But I think it's just generally poor squad management as well. They seem to have paid quite a lot for players that they're not really utilising very effectively. And if you look at, for example, Luka Jovic signed from Frankfurt for about 50 or 60 million euros. Now he's back out on loan there um, and he's not contributing to the team. I mean, he would have been a great option to bring off the bench, you know, if you need a goal in a Champions League semi-final. But he's not even there available to be able to do that. And I guess... Obviously, the elephant in the room is Eden Hazard. And I guess, you know, we, we can get into some of the reaction around him. But I think, I think first of all, it's important to emphasise that really, you know, he's, he's one issue among many and you really can't pin this on him, you know, un- unless you really want to. <laughs> yeah, I think if you are pinning it on him, you're like desperately, desperately looking for a scapegoat of, uh, of some kind. Um yeah, I, I think it was like Ramos was obviously back and he's like Mr. Real Madrid. It's his first game in a long time. He's missed loads of this season for injury. Um, and he just, he looked he looked terrible. You know, it's almost sad to see a man of, of how good he has been just, just play like that. Um, and it was the same in the first leg for Marcelo. Marcelo, he's, he's obviously been a really good player, but he... Uh, he looked long gone. Um, did, did, did you know the reason why he missed the second leg, by the way, Marcelo? Uh, yeah, he was, well, he was called to, um, to help staff the, um, the election, in the, the local elections in the community of Madrid. But I think some Real Madrid fans were saying, basically, we're kind of better off without him in there. Because um, apparently, I think if you look at the win rate for their games with Marcelo and with Mendy or someone else in the team, then it's, it's drastically lower for when Marcelo plays in, in the last couple of seasons. It does feel like he's very much over the hill in that sense. Obviously, he's been a, been a great player for them in the past. Yeah, I mean, he's won, ever, he's won pretty much everything, hasn't he? He's, he's had a really good career, but yeah, he's, he's sort of finished. Ramos sort of finished. Um, people like Modric and Cruz, they haven't really got the legs, have they? I mean, Modric had, he, he did some lovely stuff with the ball, but no one was really making that run to get between the lines. Like, and I've read, I've read quite a lot this season on Madrid, how they are just so dependent on Benzema. Like he had, he had the two sort of 
well, pretty good chances. They made uh, Mendy made two really good saves. One from a shot outside the mm. box, and one from that little deft deft header he did. Um, but aside from that, like Real were going to do nothing, were they? And yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about Edin, shall we? He, <laughs> that was another thing. It was just sad sad to see a player that we've seen week in week out absolutely tear it up. Like just sad to see him be so ineffectual. Yeah, I guess firstly, kind of referring to the performance itself. I mean. You know, he was poor out there, um, but I think if you note, for example, he actually ran the most kilometres of any Real Madrid player on the night, oh. which I was interested to see. Um, so I, it definitely wasn't through lack of trying. I think the problem was that he was basically thrown in, not fully fit. And you could tell that he was scared of getting injured again because he wasn't taking anyone on. Yeah. And quite frankly, there's no point having Eden Hazard on the pitch if he's not going to dribble, if he's not going to attack players if he's not going to be direct and do that, because that's the main appeal of having him because he's one of the best dribblers, you know, that, that we've seen in, in football in the last few decades, um, because he can just terrorize the defense and then use that, that space that he's gained from dribbling past someone to, to take a shot or, or play someone else in. Um, but if he's just kind of static out there, you know, a bit scared of getting injured. And as you say, there's, there's no runners coming from midfield. You can't even really thread a ball through. So the option is perhaps to look for Benzema. And that's really going to limit what he can do on the pitch. So there's really no point in having him out there. You just kind of almost at that stage throwing him to the Lions. Yeah, and it's another big, big signing that they they spent a lot of money on that hasn't hasn't come off yet. I did think Vinicius Junior had a good game. Like I've not seen loads of him, but I thought he was he was terrorizing Ben Chilwell, and then Zidane took him off. So that was very much bold forward confirmed. I think in my eyes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do agree in terms of like his tactical decisions that much. I mean, he went free at the back, I guess, to try to match Chelsea's formation. But it doesn't really suit their players. I and mean, you've got Vinicius Junior, who's been one of their bright spots really this season. Such a lively player, as you say, he's capable of dribbling, terrorizing any fullback in the world. He's so quick, and you know, and he's got goals for them as well. And then you're playing him in a position where you're having to give him defensive responsibilities as well against an attacking fullback like Chilwell and against the likes of Mount who will drift out to the left as well and take you on. And so that, at the same time, kind of makes you more vulnerable defensively. In particular, Edo Militao seems to be having to do a lot of work to cover both the centre-back position where Ramos wasn't playing particularly well and also that sort of right-back position because Vinicius Junior's instinct is to get a forward. But also it felt like Vinicius Junior was then himself kind of curtailed and thinking... Okay, I've got to track back a bit more and I can't focus on doing what I do best. Um, so in that sense, you're giving yourself offensive and defensive problems by doing that. So yeah, I just felt like it, it was a strange choice of system. Right? It really didn't suit their players and it showed on the pitch. We better talk about uh, Hazard after the game. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't look like a man who just lost a Champions League semi-final uh, <laughs> as, he, as he frolicked with his former teammates. Uh, my, like, my thing is... He just looked like a man that was just like happy to see people he knew, you know. He almost looked like a guy that wanted to come back to Chelsea. Like, mm. um, I understand there's a lot of like Yadar opinions about there that you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing with your rivals and, and the team that you know just played you off the park. But, um, yeah, you what was the, the, the Spanish TV show? This was the best take, weren't <laughs> it? You got to explain this, yeah. I guess, first of all, I think it's understandable that you can be you know a bit frustrated at that. I think you know, if my own team had done that and had had a player was kind of smiling and joking with the team after su- the other team after such an important match you know you'd naturally be a little bit 
uh, miffed. You know, you, you wouldn't be particularly happy with him, especially if he's not a player who's kind of been performing that much lately. But at the same time, some of the reaction, I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the, so the Spanish TV show um, El Chiringuito, we, which we actually mentioned um, in relation to, to bringing on Perez to talk about the, uh, the Super League. Um, so they're basically sort of a Real Madrid mouthpiece. Um, they get stuff directly from the club. Um, even though the host himself is Catalan and claims to be a Barcelona fan, but I think absolutely no one believes that um, because he's so pro-Real Madrid in everything he says and just goes on this kind of bizarre rant with very dramatic music in the background, sort of a very sort of softly spoken rant, that sort of air of complete disappointment and dejection, but also extreme anger at at Eden Hazard and how he's let down the Real Madrid fans, how they bought him for all this money and he was overweight uh, and he's not really trying out there. And in particular, sort of comparing him to Gareth Bale. Um, so if you actually look past kind of the history of the show as well, so they did numerous kinds of episode openings or, or intros like this about Gareth Bale. Uh, so it's very much kind of in keeping with their, their past oeuvre, so to speak. But yeah, it just shows that I mean, Spanish sporting media is something special in itself, especially when it comes to Real Madrid and Barcelona. We basically have these sort of mouthpieces for the clubs. But yeah, I think they were just desperate for a scapegoat. And especially when you've got a manager like Zidane, who you can't really blame too much because he's such a legend, um, both as a player and bring home those Champions Leagues as a manager as well, that you almost have to look somewhere to turn. You can always, you know, you criticise Ramos a little bit, but then at the same time, Ramos is a legend of the club, so I don't think he wanted to go too, too hard on him. And the obvious scapegoat is someone that you've paid, you know, over 100 million euros for, who really hasn't done anything on the pitch. Surely that, you know, that, that destroys any hope of Hazard being successful at Real Madrid from now on. Surely, if you've got, uh, essentially, kind of almost the opinion of the club being represented in a, in a show like this. And he was saying, you know, Hazard should go tomorrow. I don't want to see Hazard at the club again. So it seems like that's going to be a situation that has to be resolved somewhere other in the summer, because um, at the moment, it doesn't seem like he could, he could play for the club again, to be honest. Wow, that, that is big. Like, I didn't realise it was it was that that big a deal. That's, that's massive. But, I, you know, he, he's been injured, hasn't he, over the last couple of years. Like, they haven't seen him at his best like you say, that you see him uh, sort of cozying up to the Chelsea players after putting in like a sort of not not a great performance, like, you know, I, I guess. But yeah, I, I feel like thinking about the Gareth Bale at Real Madrid, like once once they turned on him, you know, that was it almost. Like it didn't really matter what Bale did from then on. And so I guess it could be the same, couldn't it? Once they, they've made their mind up about him, then he, he will probably be leaving the Bernabeu pretty soon. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think the problem with Hazard is just it's one of those expectation things. Again, when you bring in someone for that much money to kind of also step into the shadow of Ronaldo, obviously leaving, and then you're expecting him to match his kind of output. And the thing is with, with Eden Hazard, even kind of putting aside the, the injury problems, the fitness problems he's had, and some of it, that some of that might be his fault. I suspect a lot of it's just bad luck, though, to be honest. And also as he's getting older, especially a player with his kind of pace and the way he moves so quickly, I think that tends to lead to a lot of strains and tears as well. Um, so it's difficult for a player like that to keep their fitness as they kind of start going into their 30s as well. But also, I think Eden Hazard 
is probably, I would say, the most talented player I've ever seen who's still a little bit of a disappointment when you look at their output. Um, so I'm not sure if, if you know what I mean. Um, but I feel like, for example, if you look at his statistics at Chelsea in terms of goals in particular, um, and also kind of assists as well, if you look at how good he is and you look at how good he is on the pitch and all his amazing attributes that he has, um, and you know, one of the most terrifying dribblers around, kind of really able to pick a pass as, as well as shoot, uh, just having it all and having great, great intelligence and awareness and movement as well. You look at a player like that and you think he should be putting up, quite frankly, you know, Mohamed Salah's kind of goals or yeah. Cristiano Ronaldo or being able to influence matches like Lionel Messi even um, because he's got everything. But then you see perhaps he kind of drifts in and out of games a little bit. He's had big spells at Chelsea where he was kind of criticised for not offering that much to the team and they were trying to build around him and it just wasn't coming off because he didn't have the output. So I'm not sure if that's, you know, necessarily his fault or being asked to do too much at times. Um, but I do think that's noticeable. And when you bring in a player for 100 million euros plus, you really do expect them to be, if not carrying the team, then at least contributing massively to the attacking threat. And the fact that he doesn't done that is obviously going to be, you know, create this kind of extreme frustration and disappointment. Yeah, I think that's completely fair when you do look at the numbers. I, I do think in the sort of Messi and Ronaldo world that we find ourselves in, like statistics and numbers of goals have just been totally like blown out of the water, haven't they? Um, but yeah, he he hasn't ever really had that absolutely amazing goal scoring season. When you think of like, um, let's say Salah, he's like, has he scored 20 goals for like three years in a row now, I think, 20 Premier League goals. Whereas um, looking at his stats, like he never got 20 Premier League goals for Chelsea at any point. So... Yeah, I think his highest is 16. Um, it's obviously a st still great. But if you're looking at that going on, you know, season by season, for example, if you look at sort of 2015, 2016, he's played 31 games, he got four goals and three assists. You know, in the following two seasons, he's got five assists and four assists and he's not breaking sort of 20 goals or looking that close to it. You know, obviously you can't judge everything in football on numbers and he's contributing a lot to the team. But I do feel like for a player of his undoubted uh, immense quality, sometimes you do feel like he was lacking the output perhaps expected of him. I can't bear this any longer. I'm leaving. Yeah, not before me, you ain't. Now, now, there's plenty of exits for everyone. Oh, that's shit. You're dead, pal. Hey, no, that's uncalled for. That's your hole, Skinner. I call this a sucker riot. Come on, boys. Let's take him to school. Oi, oi, oi. Oh, but I want to do some rioting. <laughs> Jobbers. Cob no Jamaica! All done. <laughs> so Sunday, we were meant to have another edition of the thrilling Manchester United-Liverpool derby. We didn't. There was no ball kicked at Old Trafford, not by a professional footballer anyway, uh, down mm -hmm. to the fact that uh, Manchester United fan protests... Uh, outside the ground, managed to gain access to the stadium and to the pitch. 
they were protesting the Glazer regime. It's mainly mainly down to the amount of debt that Man United currently has. When the Glazers took over, there was no debt. However, Man United currently have a debt of £455.5 million. Uh, the takeover has cost United in excess of a billion pounds. Uh, plus, with the recent goings-on of the Super League, the fans, they managed to get onto the pitch, as I say, postpone this game. This is the first time a Premier League game has ever been postponed down to fan power in England. And, yeah, it was. It felt like a really like big moment for, for fan power. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, first of all, I would dispute the thrilling aspect of, of Man United-Liverpool games recently. Uh, they've, all, they've all been terrible for, for quite a few years, to be honest. Um, but yeah, in terms of no, the, the protests were, um, were great to see and I thought they were really heartening. And I think it shows the kind of impact that you can have with that kind of direct action, strengthening numbers and really showing showing what you feel and actually you know doing something about it and directly confronting them, obviously causing disruption and you know, there'll be a, a financial cost for that as well for the club. So, yeah, I think it was really great to see. What was less great to see is you had a lot of people who, for instance, when at the time of, of the Super League was, you know, very anti-Super League and saying, you know, we want to have protests against this and we want to make sure this doesn't happen. And obviously it's good that we want to involve fans a bit more. Uh, but then seeing this, they were sort of then turning to, oh, no, you can't use these sort of illegal types of means or these kind of methods where we are disrupting directly the club and you, sh- you should listen to the, the club staff and the police when they tell you not to enter the stadium um, and sort of this kind of hand-wringing going on, which, you know, just struck me as kind of hypocrisy and cowardice in particular, just not wanting to take that next step, which is what is necessary to actually uh, affect any kind of meaningful change. But then, yeah, you have this almost, I guess you would say, slightly liberal or centrist or moderate attitude um, that we can change these things, but through the right means and we can't, you know, burn any bridges or upset the apple cart. Um, when in fact, that's exactly what you should do because if they had just stayed outside the stadium with a few placards, match would have gone ahead and no one would really have talked about it that much. Uh, but because they did what they did, uh, you know, the match had to be postponed. And, you know, it's the subject of debate and it's actually you know, got to the heart of, of the issue. So very much um, a vindication for this kind of action um, and something that hopefully you can see more and more, especially as fans are allowed back into, into stadiums. Yeah, I just find it so hard to take when this view that you can get stuff done by holding banners, by marching, all these sort of things. Like, if that had happened, as you say, this this probably wouldn't have even made the news. You know, United fans have been protesting the Glazers for years and years, ever since they came in in 2005. And so many of those protests, just they just do not get any attention from anywhere and they do nothing because of that. You, you do need to sort of have this kind of direct action to ever change anything. Um, and then you had the likes of like Sooness in the studio who was trying to put this this riot or whatever you want to call it down to um, United fans being angry with the team's performances on the pitch. And it's just stuff like that, you know, it's just it's trying to dilute any potential message so that the odd her head would be turned and being like, oh, yeah, you know, they're just bitter about not having won anything for a while. When in reality, you know, they were the whole green and gold, the Norwich scarf sort of uh, pro- protest movement that came about 
under Sir Alex Ferguson back in 2010, I think, when they'd only recently won the Champions League, you know, they'd only recently won a treble of league titles. Um, so it's, you know, it's not, it's, you can't just make it an easy thing that these are the, these fans are just furious with their team. You know, it's much deeper than that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it was just about kind of fans being angry with their team, I think we would have seen Arsenal fans burn down the Emirates by now. But yeah, as you say, it was kind of a time when the club was really successful that you saw, for example, you know, as you say, the green and gold scarves, the, the creation of FC United of Manchester, as well as a protest uh, against the club. Um, and going back to the grassroots. So I think it's almost a little bit of, I don't know if it's projection or it's sort of saying that all football fans just care about the results on the pitch. And, you know, if you put a bit more money in, then they'll be fine with it. But actually saying, you know, these fans really do care about their club. They really do care what happens to it, not just on the pitch. Um, you know, I mean, they might care about sort of investment and transfers as well. But I think that's secondary to their, to their feeling that, you know, they want to take their club back to an extent and not have it sort of being used just to funnel cash to the United States. So, yeah, I think they'll be doing a, a disservice, really, to, to say that that protest, or, or, or right, whatever you want to call it, uh, was about that. When, when, as we, you know, we both agree, it was really a great use of direct action to call attention to uh, to really bad ownership. Yeah, and I think the right-wing press and all those usual avenues so we'll try and play it or they have tried to play it down as a load of sort of drunken hooligans who don't know what they're doing. You know, they're not clever enough to understand why the Glazers are bad. You know, they only understand things in football terms of win, lose, draw. So, you know, they're, they're just looking for a fight, if you know what I mean. And it's just, you know, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, almost like classist or whatever, but it's just thinking that like football fans are too, they're too stupid to really understand what they're doing. Like as soon as you like start to harm private property, it's like, how could you like? Won't somebody think of the private property? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Like, if hopefully these things continue, because that is the only way they'll ever get change. Definitely, and I think that kind of could potentially lead us on to a conversation about the uh, the social media blackout as well, which I think is a classic example, in my view, of that kind of slightly ineffectual, classic sort of reasonable or sort of moderate strategy that to be honest I mean I don't want to fault the intentions behind it but it really makes little or no difference I mean you're raising awareness of racism in football apparently on social media but surely everyone knows it's a problem by now if, if you don't you know you've quite frankly been living under a rock this doesn't actually do anything concrete about it it doesn't affect anyone in any meaningful way it just reminded me, for example, of during the Black Lives Matter protests last summer with the blacking out of pictures on, on Instagram and other platforms. And again, it, it just seems to be that really kind of easy gesture that you can do, perhaps make yourself feel a little better and feel like you're doing something and raising awareness, when in actual fact it's not cutting to the heart of the problem at all. So yeah, I, I, that's, that's my thought on it. Um, you know, it, it might sound a little bit cynical, but um, I did feel that. You know, it was just a really sort of nothing statement. I'm not sure what you felt, Tom. I'd completely agree. Um, so this this was the boycott taken by like, the majority of English football clubs, football players, uh, a lot of other sporting social media accounts. And they all vowed to not post anything or share anything from Friday the 30th of April at 3pm. And they wouldn't post anything again uh, until uh, midnight on Monday. Uh, the 3rd of May 
and yeah it was it seems something that's like just very symbolic you know um as you say we've sort of seen it before with with the hashtag blackout on on instagram where you'd post a black square um there's been other sort of twitter bike boycotts uh, i think uh, the rapper wiley when he was doing some pretty anti-semitic tweets there was a attempt on twitter to sort of to boycott that and then you know to somehow teach him a lesson matteo kovacic the chelsea player he actually made a twitter account on friday just so he could take part in the boycott um <laughs> you know I, I again it's like you say it's all very well meaning but it's sort of I think the fact that as soon as the boycott ends after, you know, what, like four days, less than four days, the social media companies, they sort of get off without any repercussions whatsoever. Like it's, it's their website, their platform that they make so much off of. And yet they don't seem to have to do anything to protect the people on it. Um, you know, people have made the point in the past that if you post a video on Twitter of uh, a Premier League goal from so many years ago or anything like that, the fact that it's sort of copyrighted by the Premier League, it will be taken down in seconds. Like, you know, you won't even be able to post it barely. Whereas they can totally tolerate these sort of racial, sexist or homophobic abuse. Like they, they can't seem to do anything about that. You know, it's, yeah, I, I think it was, I guess, well-intentioned, but it's just the complete opposite of the direct action that we were just praising. Yeah, and a really good point on the copyright strikes because um, that just shows the priorities involved here. So it's, you know, you, we can't possibly cut into our profits or um, we'll do anything to threaten our, our intellectual property or our control over this copyright. Uh, but, you know, if, if you want to send abuse to some players on, on Twitter, you know, how about it, whatever, we'll kind of, you know, treat that in a, in a piecemeal way and say we're doing stuff about it. Um, but, you know, we all know that they really could if there was a financial incentive for there to do so, but there's not at the moment. So it will carry on happening. And I, I know, for example, there was a, there was a post from, from Rabbi Matondo, who's a Welsh winger, I think on loan at Stoke at the moment uh, yeah. from Schalke. Um, and he kind of posted, I think directly after the, uh, the boycott, the boycott ended. Um, and he was showing some of the racial abuse he was receiving in uh, his direct messages, I think, on Instagram, um, and basically saying, you know, what, what was the point of this? It's, it definitely hasn't changed anything, and it's not going to work at all. Um, and, you know, I completely echo that sentiment. I think he's absolutely right. And we need to, we need to come up really with a, a much better way to do this, uh, whether that's through, you know, direct action, and obviously addressing the issue as a whole uh, in society. Um, and kind of you know in the country and obviously around the world as opposed to seeing it as just an issue of social media companies or something that just happens in football because uh, as we've talked about in the past it, it's really all interlinked and you can't deal with racism in football without confronting it head on um across the whole of society yeah i think it just it loses a lot of its like weight or like momentum when you have like the sun sport and things like that like trying to get on the bandwagon of boycotting because they're against hate even though these are the main sort of uh, sources of hate in this country the right-wing press I, I found an article by Karen Brady uh, who's obviously been involved at West Ham for a number of years um, and she'd wrote an article in the sun <laughs> about how like boycotting social media will finally force companies to clamp down on hate 
and you've wrote that in the sun you know like the company that is hate it's personified like it's just mad like i i think if it if you if you can't even keep those sort of accounts and those sort of papers like out of the conversation then it's like how are you ever gonna defeat racism yeah and specifically on the sun so they literally had an article which came out a couple of days ago basically directly after the boycott um so i'll read the headline here arsenal's Bukayo saka upsets neighbors by leaving piles of earth outside his house so again it just seems like one of those long lists of articles attacking especially young black english footballers um you know doing home renovations or buying a car or being seen out in public without the appropriate attire or whatever they want to to pin on on some unsuspecting uh, player so yeah i i just don't think it, as you say it has any validity when you've got that kind of organization being involved for this uh, supposed movement and i think the other thing that a lot of people have been saying to like try and tackle this is completely wrong as well uh, in terms of this idea that you need like an identification or a national insurance number to like make a social media account like i think this is almost being like put forward as like a viable idea like a thing that we should all be willing to do to give up all of these things like it's just, you know i i think i've seen people like i think troy deeney and some other like black players come out and say these kind of things and it's like you know like absolutely horrendous like I could never get, I could never expect to get the amount of hate or criticism that you get, you know, just for being a black man or whatever. But this is not the way to go. Like this, this thing of just giving all of these terrible companies all of your information. I mean, we've given them so much already. Like if we really do all just sign up to give those things away, then it's, it really is the end. Yeah. And the vast majority of people that I've seen kind of put that forward are, are really not kind of the people affected by it themselves. As you say, there's, there's a few instances of that. Um, but in general, it just seems to be, I don't know, journalists or, or kind of people who fancy themselves as a authorities on this. Um, but forgetting the fact that, for example, for a lot of people, especially in, in marginalised groups, it's, it's quite important for them to have an on anonymity online, especially you know members of the LGBTQ plus uh, community, and indeed uh, potentially kind of black people and people of uh, of ethnic minorities as well. And I think a, a big kind of counter to this idea is that you often see kind of some of the worst sentiments on Facebook when you've got people who kind of openly have, you know, their profile picture up, they've got pictures of their dogs or their children up there, uh, they've got all their family and friends on there, and you still see kind of comments um, in, I don't know, under a, a post or an article, you know, just expressing the vilest possible opinions and just open racism or, or homophobia or, or anything else. And, you know, it, it just does to show that anonymity is just not going to help the issue. It's not reaching the, the root cause at all. Um, quite frankly, you know, if, if you hold those opinions and often you, you're sort of kind of proud about it. Uh, and I don't think that's going to stop people from, from really abusing players uh, when they're happy to do so under their own names. Amarillo 
12 camisetas y por dentro un corazón que late al son del grande y del pequeño guayaquileño. Hoy tengo fiesta en el Monumental. Porque juega Barcelona. Pero qué cosa sensacional. Ya no habrá rival Porque gana Barcelona Vamos con todo y hasta el final Let's talk Copa Libertadores South America's premier continental competition uh, This season's started only started less than a month after Palmeiras had beat Santos for last year's trophy obviously affected by Covid we are now about halfway through the group stage and the, the, there's been some interesting results. Gremio have already been knocked out. But they were beaten by an Ecuadorian team. Is this Independiente del Valle? Del Valle, yeah. So independent of, of the Valley, essentially. Um, but yeah, they've been quite a, a revelation in recent years in Ecuador. So they've... Um, They've actually got quite far in the competition before. And it's only recently that even in Ecuadorian football, they were at all well known. Um, so they've kind of come up out of nowhere in the last, say, five to 10 years and developed a really strong youth system as well in terms of bringing players through. So, you know, quite nice to see to see them having some success as well. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty cool. That's quite a big result. Um, uh, Gremio didn't make the group stage. In terms of the recent games, I think with your... Barcelona of Ecuador connections you'd be quite happy with their result against Santos yes yeah absolutely so uh, I guess to, uh, to explain a little bit here so um, you know I'm a fan of uh, Barcelona Sporting Club so Barcelona SC not to be confused with the uh, the inferior Spanish side um, <laughs> but yeah um, so they're you know traditionally one of the biggest teams in Ecuador um, so the main one of two main teams uh, in Guayaquil, along with Emelec. Um, you know, have, have some some good success in recent years in terms of the Ecuadorian league, but um, have failed to, to make many inroads uh, in the Copa Libertadores recently, though they've reached two finals before. But a really great start to the, to the group stage in quite a tough group. Um, so they've got three wins so far and no goals conceded as well, um, having played um, Boca Juniors, you know, obviously one of, the, one of the giants of South American football, Santos, uh, as we mentioned, uh, last year's runner-up, runners-up, um, and the strongest from Bolivia, which was a route as well. Uh, you know, on a, on a side note, the strongest is one of those really fun um, kind of Bolivian club names as well. So you've also got in this year's competition, always ready. So yeah, you do get some fun names in South American football as well, which is always uh, nice to see. Yeah, I was just about to bring them up. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I looked them up. They're, they're playing in the Copa Libertadores for the first time in 54 years, apparently. Um, and they beat Internacional of Brazil in La Paz. So that's a pretty good result. They're, uh, they're they were ready, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they were ready. Uh, yeah, so they sit second in their group with every chance of going through. Boca Juniors recorded their first win in La Paz in 51 years. Uh, beating always ready's city rivals the strongest, as you were saying in that group. Um, in their case, very much an oxymoron at the moment. Uh, doesn't seem to live up to, to their reputation. 
Yeah, they're sat, sat bottom <laughs> with three, three defeats out of three. And they haven't scored a goal yet either. Uh, aside from Santos struggling in their group, uh, Brazil have been having a good tournament. Uh, Brazilian teams have been having a good tournament. Sao Paulo, top their group. Flamengo, top their group. Palmeiras, the holders, top their group. Uh, and Fluminense and Atletico Mineiro are both unbeaten. Um, like, do, do you get to see much of this this competition, or what, what's it like for you? I do try to watch what I can. I think the issue is, well, firstly, the, the timings um, kind of being based, obviously, anywhere in Europe. The games are going on generally kind of really late at night or quite early in the morning um, because of the time zones. So it can be tough to kind of stay up and watch the matches. Um, so a lot of it's kind of done, in my case, kind of through, through highlights, which, you know, you're still good to see, but not quite the same as the full matches. I think the other issue as well is the lack of TV coverage. Um, so you don't really get much of it outside of kind of the, the American hemisphere. Um, it's difficult to find channels. I don't think there's currently any uh, channel in the UK. I think you can pay, I think. For, yeah. I, I was subscribed to that Fanatis for a little bit. Um, but as you say, I just wasn't, I wasn't staying up to watch enough games really because it was quite a good service. It had a lot of different leagues and I feel like they might have dropped a couple now, but at different times mm. it's, it's had um, Argentinian football, it's had Ecuadorian football, it's had Peruvian football. Yeah, if, if, you, yeah. Did, if you did want to see it, it seems like most of it is on Fanatis. Yeah, um, but as you, as you say, yeah, not the easiest um, to kind of view in general, which is a shame because it's really exciting competition. You know, and you kind of get a little bit more variety, I feel, that than the Champions League. You've kind of got the smaller countries who are able to, to upset the apple cart quite a lot. And it's generally quite a good variety of teams kind of challenging and you get quite a few shock results as well. And also with some kind of really interesting locations um, that kind of change things up as well. So obviously we've got La Paz uh, uh, in, in the likes of Quito, for example, as well, where you've got the height, um, the altitude coming in a little bit. Um, and you've got obviously much more kind of tropical conditions or you've got sort of cooler, more temperate conditions down in Argentina. Uh, so you've even kind of got a really cool range of, um, of weather conditions and kind of atmospheric conditions as well. Yeah, I guess the other interesting thing that I noticed this season as well is the Argentinian clubs in general seem to be finding it quite tricky. Um, so they were having, you know, a very mixed bag. Um, in Boca, I've got a couple of wins, but they also lost as well, Vélez Sarsfield a third. So you kind of got, you know, the traditional two big countries of Brazil and Argentina in the competition. The Argentinian clubs seem to be struggling quite a bit this season. And the Uruguayan clubs, I noticed, we also kind of traditionally do very well in the competition, especially uh, kind of the big two, Nacional and Peñarol. Hmm. Um, so Peñarol aren't even in the competition this season. Uh, Nacional currently bottom of their group uh, with one point. Um, it's interesting to see that kind of how it can fluctuate a bit more than perhaps in the Champions League. We expect to see kind of certainly the top three or four leagues up there all the time, uh, kind of no matter what. Yeah, no, it's definitely worth uh, watching if if you're up for it because I've I've always really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed watching the semis and the final of, of last season's mm. tournament that aired. I think I think even the BBC had the rights to show them. So yeah. maybe maybe in the later stages of the competition, the BBC will be able to show it this year as well. But yeah, there, there's some there's some mad things that happen in Latin American football, isn't there? Yeah, you always get some interesting scenes as well. I remember there was one game where uh, 
a player scored and then jumped into the sort of a promotional car on the side of the pitch, kind of, um, you know, you know pr promote one of the big car companies. And they just, they just hopped in there uh, with a few of their teammates, uh, which I thought was quite a nice celebration. There was a little Spanish fleet, a record star he thought he'd be. He heard of singers like Beatles, the chipmunks he's seen on TV. Why not a little Spanish fleet? To finish off, to do a little bit of a preview of the last few weekends in Spain. As we've been saying, the title race there has been one of the best in Europe this season. There is still mathematically a chance of four teams winning the title. Sevilla lost to Athletic Bilbao at the weekend. Um, so they did drop a bit further back, but they still do have a chance of catching Atletico Madrid. But it should be an interesting weekend, this one coming. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Atletico top by two points, Sparse and Real level, and then Sevilla further four points off. Um, and we've got, yeah, Barca, Atletico and Real Madrid, Sevilla. Um, so it could be kind of a deciding weekend really overall. I know generally Atletico have not had a great record against Barcelona. So it'll be interesting to see if they can kind of put that to one side and, and get a result. Because you do feel that if they win, especially if Real Madrid drop points against Sevilla, then that would be a huge result for them. Uh, potentially, you know, go five or, or four points clear at this stage of the season. That could be decisive. But obviously if they lose, then it, then it comes out of their hands. Yeah, I think that would be really the key game to watch, the game that's going on first and then... To see if obviously if Sevilla can spring an upset on a perhaps a slightly demoralised Real Madrid side. Yeah, I I still desperately want Atletico to just crawl over that line because they've just led it this whole way, haven't they? Really, and it would be sad to see one of the main main teams like Real Madrid or Barcelona pip them. So I'm praying for Simeone that they can just <laughs> get there. Another episode done. Thank you for coming on, Luis. Uh, thanks again, Tom. Uh, had a great time as usual. Yeah, me too. Uh, thank you for listening. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>